Great to see you all. Uh, those of you who joined us since the worship began, thank you guys so much. Um, if you can cast your mind back to pre-COVID, remember that thing, you know, um, there was a time before, you know, the time that's just been. Um, I think it was sort of January of uh, one of the years that was in the past. Uh, all the money that was um, being put in the offering baskets. Remember offering baskets? You used to have those things and pass them around. And um, uh, All the money that went into the offering baskets went to an organization called um, 4020. Uh, and that was, we raised, you guys very, very generously raised a whole lot of money. And that was given to that organization. It was back just in the run-up, I think, to um, lockdown and stuff like that. We thought it would be fun, as we have um, Ricky Goodamore here, to hear from 4020 as to what's happened with that money and stuff like that. So would you welcome Ricky? Come join us. There you go, you can take that one. Yeah, thank you. Um, I know that I may have to refresh some of our um, pre-COVID brains to remember a little bit about what, what we do. Uh, so I'm based in Jerusalem and uh, uh, in Israel, and our work really is, is focused around the sobering reality that, that I was only made aware of in recent years, that out of about 7,000 languages globally, actually more than that, less, well, actually just in the last year, we've crossed the 10% threshold. 10% of those languages have a full Bible. And actually, an even more sobering reality, as we come to understand it, of about 350 sign languages, there is only one full Bible. So I'll let that sink in. I, you may, I know you may have heard this from James last year, James Barber, but um, you know, I, it's a statistic that, that you takes us a while to get our heads around. And uh, really, you know, you're looking at justice. For me, the issue of Bible poverty is a huge issue of justice as we have phones and access to the word in many different ways, but there are so many still waiting to hear that word. So that's the context in which we work at the 4020 Foundation in Jerusalem. We're actually training translators in the biblical languages, um, actually so that they can take the word and translate it for their community, whether it's in text form, sign form, oral form, um, so that they can really get the closest access to the source and put it into formats that their communities understand. So that's, that's our work. And really, I could say much more. I could... Uh, take a long time, but I'm here to say thank you, uh, more than anything else, actually, for, for your generosity as a church. Um, for us in the middle of the pandemic, when people were being laid off and furloughed and, and all sorts globally, actually this church stepped up and, and gave in, in a sacrificial ways, and that is something that we are, are grateful for, um, so grateful and so thankful. Uh, actually, you took the time to pray, even for some of our students who were able to join one of your prayer meetings virtually somehow, and, and to connect with your prayer teams. So that support was, was so valuable. So just to give you a quick report of where we've been in this COVID year, actually around that time uh, when you were doing the season of, of giving, you know, the whole pandemic hit. And from us as expecting our fourth cohort of about 30 or so students, we were forced overnight to shut it, postpone it, um, you know, we have a, a big facility in Jerusalem that we couldn't use for to welcome students. But thankfully, um, God's grace to us, we've actually been enabled to pivot and train online. So this last year, from having expected 25 students to come to us in Jerusalem, 
actually over the course of this year, we've been able to accept about 100 students from nations, I believe, from Hawaii across to Tonga, so about 23 time zones, uh, which has been an administrative challenge, uh, perhaps one of those challenges that we take as a, as a blessing, uh, but really the Lord has been faithful. Actually, next week we are about to welcome online a group of students who we trust, some of them already have their visas to join us in January. So it's been a tricky year. Um, but God has been faithful. Actually, some of these people, about 30 of them, are from Indonesia, which is the, the nation with the most left untranslated Bibles, so to speak. Yes, that's the faith way of saying it. Bibles as languages, no, this, they have the most untranslated Bibles uh, that there are. Um, and actually, they have been able to join us uh, online, even though they wouldn't have been able to join us actually in country because of diplomatic relations. So, Really, God's been faithful, um, but we want to thank you, this church, uh, Southwest London Vineyard, for your generosity. Uh, you know, we believe that a, an investment in translation is one that actually lasts generations. You know, a, a translator who translates serves as a pillar for that community. It, it serves as a, a baseline for the law, so many different things. So really, it's a, it's a gift that, that crosses generations. So really, thank you. From all of us, from our team in, in Jerusalem, and um, yes, we are so grateful. That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you all for your generosity. You can find out more information about um, 4220, obviously, on the, um, on the websites, and if you want to continue giving to that, as I know uh, some of you have been on an ongoing basis, that would be brilliant. Okay, moving on. Um, as you heard from Kate last week, um, I just look like a bandit. <laughs> um, we're, uh, we felt like the Lord is, is call, calling us to focus on justice over this coming season, um, and so we're going to be looking at that, and we've asked Tom to give us... Um, yeah, can you just ask Josh which mic? Cause it's you, you can use this one, this one, no, this one, the other one, the other one, use that one. Um, so, uh, Tom, greedy. Morning, sorry it's been a little while, so uh, this could be quite ropey. I probably also will drop things and start coughing, so uh, if anyone has a particular gift of healing, just pray for my throat, because the three of us have had a marvellous cold, which has been really enjoyable. Um, so there we go. Right, I've been asked to talk about justice which is a bit daunting, really, um, and in two talks to try and explain or at least allude to how the kingdom of God, which is hopefully a thing that we've heard of and we know a bit about, and this thing called justice, which is another thing that hopefully we know a bit about, are related. And last week, Kate alluded to a huge number of things, um, but one thing that really stuck out, largely because I'd already started working on it, um, was her allusion to Jesus' quotation of Isaiah 61. Um, so I was asked to start preparing this about a month ago? I don't know. Time's weird, isn't it? Um, and so I'd started preparing a sermon on Luke 4, and so when she kept quoting Isaiah 6 to 1, I was like, ah, good, that's handy. We're speaking the same sort of language. So it's been cool to see the way that the Spirit is already pointing us to that place. But we'll see as we look at this passage just how important the work of the Spirit is to the work of the kingdom of God, particularly when it comes to talking about justice. 
Um, I apologize for my PowerPoint. Apparently, I need to invert the colors. So if I'm allowed back next week, I'll do that, and then you'll be able to read it. Um, there we go. So yeah, firstly, the thing that Kate alluded to around a possible concern that talking about justice is a sort of woke add-on to the gospel, or a cultural thing, or something that we do because it's popular or gets us to connect with young people or old people or whichever demographic we're meant to be aiming for. That's not what this is. As I hope to be able to show, this is a calling and idea with roots deep into creation that run through the whole Bible. And I actually um, just show how prepared I am. I was just checking Isaiah 61, and the bit that Jesus doesn't quote, well, a bit, um, God says, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. Um, and to link back to what was being said about Bible translation, I think God hates the fact that people are having the Bible stolen from them because it's not in their language. So that's just an aside, but it's quite cool. So God loves justice, but we need to know what we actually mean by justice in order to say that God loves it. Secondly, and related to that kind of concern, is the necessity of doing this as a body of believers in conversation around Scripture. In Ephesians 4.15, Paul talks about not being blown about by every wind of doctrine, which works for me as an image because I like sailing, but in more normal English, have our minds changed by any big idea that's currently trending. And Paul says this, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And so that means that if you're a high-flying human rights lawyer working pro bono to try and stop people being deported, or you're a slightly frazzled suburban dad of a toddler who kind of has a normal office job, you have something to contribute and something to do and something to give to the work of justice, which is quite cool. Um, and this is the helpful thing about holding scriptures, our plumb line, our baseline, the backing track and defining shape of our life together. That's why we come back to it again and again, not unthinkingly, not stupidly, but with the expectation that God will speak and that his word is living and active, partly because that's what Jesus did. Um, so if I could have the, oh, good, you might be able to read that passage. If not, everyone's got phones, haven't they? Probably. Um, so we're going to read from Luke 4, and I was going to like make a scroll and have someone with a beard kind of act this out, because it works better when you see what Jesus was actually doing, but I'll read it, and you'll just have to imagine it. Imagine that I've prepared a scroll and a bearded man. Um, yeah, so Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. Um, I'm reading from a Bible I was given at my baptism when I was 15, which um, is very, very small, but it's quite significant because that's kind of what is happening here. Jesus is going back to where he came from. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Everyone spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Is this Joseph's son, they asked. Um, and if you have a similarly small Bible to the one I'm holding at the moment, on the previous page, this is the same Jesus who was arguing with his elders and betters in the temple courts about the Bible. So this was, this was a little bit weird. A few years later, this guy rocks up and basically does the equivalent of a mic drop. So there we go. 
Um, Luke grounds this in the real world, in the rhythms of Jesus' life. He goes to the Sabbath every, he goes to the synagogue every Sabbath day. It's a place he knows well, it's the place he was brought up. Imagine a wedding here. I don't imagine my daughter's wedding because she's very, very small and it's logistically complicated. But imagine a wedding here, maybe of someone who's grown up in the church. We're anticipating the bride's arrival. She's a bit late, that seems to be the custom. And we're maybe sat in our finery. But we've been anticipating it for years. Maybe we've watched the couple meet or they met at university and came back and we've gradually got to know them, whatever. But we're anticipating it. That's kind of what's going on in that little story of Jesus. The ancestors have passed on the anticipation that the day of the Lord, the year of the Lord, the kingdom of God would come. But you'd kind of got used over three or 4,000 years to the idea that it wouldn't come in your lifetime. You wouldn't expect that another sermon from another random traveling rabbi down the synagogue would be the one to change things, particularly not in Nazareth, which is kind of a bit like Putney. It's, sort of, it's, a, nice, it's a nice place, but it's neither here nor there. And so there are strange echoes with today. Perhaps some of you have already switched off while I listen to another white guy, not very charismatic, talking about a book, particularly an old book, because the anticipation has been building. We've had months of being on Zoom, and now it's like we've sort of woken up, I feel. The excitement has built. I'm hearing and seeing stories from all around the church, both this church and the wider global church, and from different tribes of expectancy and anticipation building. We've spent, well, it was sort of a year, but it's more than a year, being disrupted and seeking to engage in new rhythms, leaning into silence and solitude and prayer, but also being deprived. And now we're back, gathered, in the real world. The real world where on the way to church you might have passed people begging or sleeping rough. The real world where I know that the car that my family drive is affecting the environment that Amy and I are planning to bring another child into, which according to some is also a terrible, evil thing to do. The real world where statistically it's highly likely that you've either passed someone or are someone who's being abused in some way. The real world where we know the church is not perfect, this church is not perfect, and the constellation of things we call injustice affects us in overlapping, intersecting ways. But enough about us. A dusty synagogue, another sermon, another sermon, and this unassuming man approaches the lector, and some people will have known him from some work they did on his house, or maybe some decking or something, he was a carpenter. And he quotes from the Bible, Isaiah 61. It's nice, heard it before. But the thing that is new is this line, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Thousands of years of waiting, bam. Here is a man who knows what's going on. To a Greek then, perhaps hearing this story and aware that the Christians were already saying that Jesus was a God, this is a God who's not sitting around bickering or drinking or reveling or sleeping with mortals, but a God who is announcing his rule and reign. To us today, perhaps getting a bit too used to bewildering incompetence at every level of government, it seems someone saying, I'm the king, and this is what my kingdom is like. Um, could I have the slide with a definition on, which is like the one after the Bible verses, which hopefully will be legible. So the one before that one, possibly? Yeah, thank you. Um, so here in Luke 4, we have a short manifesto for the kingdom of God, and the king's shield maiden, if you like, justice. There are many ways to understand justice. If you Google it, the de definitions are simultaneously extremely boring and extremely disconnected to lots of the things and causes that claim to be about justice. But I think the most biblical way of talking about justice is something like this, that justice as part of the kingdom of God is a revolution of love that restores creation to God's intended end, making everything right again. So it's not an amorphous blob, it's a trajectory with the end result of everything being made right again. 
And I think that definition is better and richer, more wonderful and more painful and a darn sight more hard work than any secular notion of justice. It's rich and thick and meaty, and we could spend hours, but I'm not allowed to, unpacking the meaning of the words that the Bible translates as just, justice, righteousness, all those things. There's another word that I think is important. It's a word behind the story we're looking at today. Jesus is free to finally announce his kingdom. We are free to respond, and the kingdom involves freedom. This manifesto from Isaiah 61 is a freedom manifesto. I'm hoping that this is the first of two talks. This week I'll talk a bit about what Jesus comes to free the world and us from, and next week I hope to speak a bit into what Jesus comes to free us for. So what does Jesus free us for? Uh, there we go. Um, I've been told by Amy, who knows much more about these things than I, that I shouldn't talk about this other than say, hopefully you can see a sort of an arrow sign. Um, and basically, whenever we look at a biblical text, we can look at the individual words, and that's nice, and we look at where it comes in the story, and that's nice, but sometimes the writers use the way the sentences are constructed to point to something. And so here, Luke is pointing to the line in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus comes into the synagogue, he stands up to read, the scroll was handed to him, he unrolls the scroll, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he rolls up the scroll, he gives the scroll back, he sits down, and he's still in the synagogue. The focus is on this line, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Wherever you've come from this morning, and wherever you're going afterwards, we all desire and need direction for our lives, and Jesus offers us that. Perhaps today, Jesus is inviting you to change direction radically, to come to him, maybe for the first time, and listen to where he wants you to go. Perhaps today, Jesus is going to encourage you in the direction you're already going in, inviting you further up and further into the kingdom of God. Perhaps in this moment, Jesus wants the simple act of being present and listening, or scratching the back of your head, it doesn't really matter, to be your direction. Just enough light for the step you're on, to misquote Max Licardo. So why am I saying that Jesus frees us from having no direction? Uh, next slide, if it is legible. It's not very legible. It's a nice picture of some curtains blowing in the wind. Anyway, um, firstly, the Spirit comes from God the Father and is actively engaged in celebrating and making famous the name of Jesus as the King goes about his mission and ministry of restoring everything in a revolution of love. Knowing that amazing movement, what some theologians call the Missio Dei, which is pidgin Latin for the mission of God, is an amazing invitation to direction for our lives. The Spirit comes to us, leads us back to God so that we can go back into the world to live and speak of King Jesus, inviting the world to recognize the truth. That's why we do this on a Sunday and we'll do it next Sunday. We come, we invite him to come and then we get sent out and then we get a bit tired and so we come back again and again and again and it's good. Secondly, the spirit pours out. In the quotation from Isaiah, um, Jesus says, because he has anointed me. There's this image of being covered with oil. Fortunately, the spirit is not a liquid, but the sense of being fully covered and immersed and transformed is really important. Jesus takes us, saves us, fills us with his spirit, remakes us into people with direction, people invited into and involved in his revolution of love, even as we start to see the kingdom come now. Thirdly and finally for this bit, the spirit sends us. This is not something to be kept to ourselves. Look at the flow of the text here. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. And then the rest of it is all about what the spirit tells us to go and do. He's poured out on Jesus as anointing oil. And the byproduct of this process is that Jesus is sent out to proclaim good news to the poor. The word poor here is really interesting, but it's not referring to just material or financial poverty. 
but that'll move us on to the next point. The point I'm making is that the Spirit comes at least in part to give us direction, joining us into God's mission, anointing and filling us to participate in God's revolution of love and sending us out to do what we can and will do as part of the ever-growing family of God. Could have the next slide. Um, I was recently asked in an internal job interview, which was okay because it's a Christian publisher, not some weird people trying to catch me out, um, the slightly awkward question, what is the gospel? Um, now, growing up, I grew up in a Christian family, I might have replied about the age of 10, I would have said quite confidently, not necessarily believing it, Jesus died to save sinners. Now, that's true, although my reasons for giving it at age 10 might have had more to do with cultural expectation than actual conviction. As a theology student, I might have replied to irritate those around me, it's pointless trying to define the gospel. Um, that answer is typically vague, and that was mostly intended to deflect attention from my crippling insecurity and spark off conversations that I could contribute to meaningfully. But in that interview, I decided to answer in a way that probably wasn't going to win me points, because I didn't just quote back the statement of faith, but answer in the way I actually believed. I said something like this, the gospel is the announcement that Jesus is king, that he's come to this world to set everything right, inviting humanity to join his family and be loved by his father, and that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave is available to us now. It starts in our individual hearts and lives, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it's so much bigger than that. I wasn't wrong when I was 10, but like most of my opinions when I was 10, they weren't that big. I wasn't completely right. I definitely was wrong as a student, not least because of what else was going on. And I tell this slightly strange personal story to make a point. As a child, I was captive, in some good ways and some bad ways, to the views of my parents and my Sunday school teachers. As a student, I was very captive to my insecurity, my struggle with depression, the views of my lecturers who I was trying to please. Jesus comes to free us from our sin. He comes to free me from my sin. And as part of that process, he's been freeing me from captivity, showing me where things are unhealthy, but also showing me the good intentions where I might have missed them. Now, I mentioned the poor a moment ago, and the Greek word here, which I will butcher the pronunciation of, but fortunately there are no living New Testament Greek speakers around apart from Jesus, and he's very gracious, uh, is tokis, or tokis, which can mean needy, poor, without property, wretched, Low, helpless, powerless, insignificant, downcast, sullen. In short, it applies to everyone. Even, it does, even as it does undeniably apply specifically to the poor in the kind of the normal sense we understand that. I think we need to hear, some of us need to hear two very different things from the same text. We need to be freed from two um, maybe misunderstandings. Firstly, the poor deserve our love, respect, service and proclamation of the gospel. What does that look like? It might look like serving at food bank or writing to a politician to ask why the food banks are necessary or educating ourselves as to what is going on in systems of justice, as in criminal justice, um, educational healthcare. Secondly, the poor are not just the poor in stuff or, or, or money and things. And justice in the kingdom of God is not just about the obvious things, the things that people outside the church like, like food banks, writing to politicians and so on. It might be as simple as asking the Spirit to show you those in your own family, workplace, or street or block of flats who are low, needy, powerless, or feeling insignificant. Because the kingdom of God says that those things are not ultimately who these people are. Rather, they're invited out of that, to step forward, invited into the family and mission of God. Whoever you are, who, whatever you've done, hear this. You're made in the image of God, and the way things are now does not have to be the way that things are from today. Now, I've used that phrase, the image of God, and Kate used it last week. Um, I've written a master's thesis on it, if anyone's really bored and wants to find out what I thought then. Um, it's a huge topic, 
Uh, I'd love to do 12 sermons about, again, not allowed to. But I love this quote from C.S. Lewis um, in the Narnia novel, Prince Caspian. Aslan says, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. Honor and shame. You are infinitely valuable. You are infinitely valuable, which is why Christ died for you. And you are fundamentally sinful. I am fundamentally sinful, which is why Christ died for you. Come to him, cling to him, invite his spirit to free you from that captivity to sin and dare to step into that new way of living. I'm sure lots of people would love to talk to you about that um, over coffee, which Neil will pay for apparently, if you're new. Anyway, um, I think there's another thing that Jesus loves to free us from, and it's vital if we want to go on to join with him in the pursuit of justice. Jesus came in part to free us from lies. So let me give you an example, partly because I've lied on this exact thing before. You may have heard the quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. We like this quote. I've used it myself before in a talk on justice, and I said, ah, do justice at all times, use words if necessary. I thought it looked really clever. Um, There are two problems with it. Firstly, he probably never said it. Uh, That means if we take it as a guiding principle, we're basing the way we're doing things on a lie. That's why Jesus goes back beyond himself to the Bible to point to the truth. Secondly, Francis would have been horrified to think that we could preach the gospel without words. And I would be a bit puzzled if you tried to end slavery, for example, without any words at all, only by running around doing something but with no words. The gospel is an announcement, first and foremost, which means it needs to be spoken. And it's exactly what Jesus is doing here in Luke. Some of us might need to be freed from the well-intentioned lie that being nice and doing nice things is enough to see people meet Jesus and change the world. Others of us need to be freed from the lie that telling someone about Jesus is enough. Others of us need to be free from the lie that justice is only a private matter for prayer and not one that could cause us to look a bit foolish and speak out. The Bible is full of true stories of people speaking out on behalf of those who could not speak for themselves. Think particularly of Esther. Perhaps that's what we're called to do. I could have the next slide, thank you. The third thing I want to say that I think Jesus frees us from is our past. Um, One definition of justice that comes up fairly high up in the Googles is justice is people get what they deserve. I am really glad that Jesus' death means that I won't get what I deserve for the things I've done, especially and even to those that love me and that I love the best. That definition of justice is a definition of retribution and revenge. Compare it to the definition of justice we've been exploring. A definition of justice that's rooted in the cross says that justice will be and has been done, but that Jesus offers us the chance to get what we don't deserve because he loves us. After this amazing little reading from the scroll that Isaiah was written in, although Jesus does leave out something about God's judgment, which is interesting, and anyway, it's just interesting. Um, He does talk about it, and we might touch on it a bit next week. Luke records Jesus as deliberately rolling up the scroll and putting it down. And then he sits down because sermons used to be preached sitting down. Sorry about that. Um, And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, what we don't know is whether today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing was the whole sermon, in which case bold, but he's Jesus, or just like kind of the key point. In either case, yeah, I'd quite like to find out. But it's clearly important to pick up on this. The anticipation which has been building, the anticipation which might have been faltered by, oh, Isaiah 61, again, we've heard this, Jesus, is suddenly exploded by this pronouncement. Something new is happening, and it isn't going to be like what it was before. 
The first focal point of this passage was this idea that the Spirit of the Lord is here. That's our prayer and our priority as a church. It's grounded in worship and in the reading and preaching and studying of Scripture. When we say, come Holy Spirit, that's really kind of betraying our priority. And from that place, we move to action. We don't invite the Holy Spirit just so we feel nice. We invite the Holy Spirit to help us to change the world. And that's the second point of this passage. Jesus comes to free us from our past. He, he, he unlocks the future as he says this. His original audience will have been waiting in anticipation. So we probably hear it today and we miss the radical nature of that pronouncement. The moment Jesus uttered the words, the kingdom came. The wait was over. The revolution began, perhaps not fully. Um, Tom Wright, who's much cleverer than me, says that the Easter weekend was the day the revolution began, but something had started in a way that couldn't be stopped. And you see, as Jesus frees us from the past, this isn't into an ill-defined amorphous blob of freedom, kind of like a bad social event, um, but into a rich and colorful kingdom, into a mission, into a family. We're freed from something for something, which as I say, from allow back, we'll talk about next week. Unless our baby comes, in which case you'll have to wait, and then you'll be a bit like the people in the synagogue who weren't quite sure when it was going to happen. So that could be a useful, uh, useful illustration. Um, but yeah, before that, let's, uh, let's move into it. Uh, we're not doing ministry in the normal way. There's not space and, you know, COVID and coughing and things. But we can allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us wherever we sit. And if you're sitting next to someone who's willing, then you can pray with them. Um, and I ended the reading on verse 22 because it's quite interesting, or at least I found it interesting, and I've got a microphone. Um, so verse 22 is not very well translated, it turns out. A number of translations and a rough majority of scholars reckon that the phrase, they all spoke well of him, which sounds marvelously English, should better be translated, they all bore witness to him. That's a really interesting point, and it changes the way we hear that and see that. We don't want to be people, I don't think, or I don't think we should want to be people, that those who know us speak well of. We need to be people who speak well of Jesus to others. Jesus' sermon, whether it was just one line or longer, provoked a response. Um, yeah, so what will your response to, be, to Jesus be today? I think there are three things or three different kinds of people, or there will be other things, but I'll stop with those and then I will stop. Firstly, I think there are those of us who feel directionless and desire direction. I think the Spirit would love to give us direction and guidance, whether it's the kind of the famous verses of Micah 6, 8, walk humbly, love mercy, do justly, that kind of thing, or John 10, 10, inviting us into a fullness of life, or actually, really simplistically, an invitation to lunch at Nando's, something like that. That might be the direction that someone needs today. Second, there are those of us who feel captive to things. Perhaps you're captive to lies you believe about yourself or your identity, or you're captive to a relationship that needs change. Perhaps you're captive to debt or addiction, or you're stuck in a rut that you thought was just the pandemic, but now you're not so sure. For example, this is my only pair of vaguely adult trousers. I really need to buy some new trousers. Um, Jesus came to free captives, and so he invites us to come to him, to come out of things to him. And thirdly, there are those of us who'd like today to be a day where we make a break with the past. I don't know what that means for you, but I know that Jesus does, and that just as he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing today, and so too now he wants to speak words of love to you today. We're free from stuff so that we can be freed for stuff, which involves and includes the work of justice, which we're going to be spending time speaking about. Um, have I got time to pray? Sweet. Um, yeah, if, if you want to, you can stand, but don't feel you have to. If you want to stick a hand out, you're welcome to, or you can just sort of gaze strangely out the window. It's a very nice day. No, not anymore, is it? Um,
Come, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we've seen um, that the words that you inspired Isaiah to write, that Jesus read out loud, that we get to enjoy today. We lift before you the thousands of languages and the millions of people who don't have these words their own language. And we ask that you would do a work that enables them to hear and to see who you are. But for those of us in this room, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you give us direction? Would you join us to your family? Would you join us in with your mission? Would you begin to speak to us and show us how to have receptive hearts to your call to justice? And if, yeah, if, if, if you are someone in this room who's meant to invite someone out for lunch, ask that you would know that that's what you need to do today. Amen.